spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David E. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs and Beachside Roofing. Aloha, happy Monday morning to all of you. I'm Yanji Denise, joined by Ryan Kalei Suji. This, of course, is Spotlight Hawaii on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we see a lot of you joining us live right now. And, of course, we've got a lot to talk about, Ryan. And today we go straight to the top at the Hawaii State Capitol. That's right. Joining us once again is Governor David Ige. Good morning, Governor. Thanks so much for being a part of our conversation this morning and for joining us. Uh, you know, we have a lot of topics and a lot of things that we want to get to. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, first, starting off with COVID-19 and where we're at as a state. Uh, another day where we're seeing a four digit uh, case counts. And, uh, you know, we continue to see this Omicron variant spreading throughout the community on various islands. Uh, if you can update us on the conversations you've had with the mayors and what are your thoughts right now of where we're at right now as a state with COVID-19? You know, uh, Brian, we are, are definitely concerned as the case counts have um, have increased. And, uh, you know, we're now uh, averaging seven-day averages, uh, more than 3,000 cases a day. Uh, we are carefully watching um, the healthcare system and the hospital counts, and it has been uh, steadily increasing. Uh, the one area that um, has had um, a slow increase is really in the ICU units with COVID patients. And, you know, we uh, had heard that Omicron might be uh, not as virulent as uh, Delta or previous COVID cases. And certainly that's something that uh, we are looking at. Uh, Ryan, as you know, um, Omicron and COVID has really spiked all across the country, virtually every uh, state and every community is seeing their highest record uh, cases um, and you know they are definitely challenging healthcare systems all across the country and certainly that's a concern for all of us here and and to that end what kind of measures are you looking at putting in place to make sure that our health care system can sustain the surge that we're seeing now of course we know there can be a delay between these high case counts and when we actually see impacts to our hospital system yeah, certainly, Yanji. We uh, have been working with uh, the hospitals, and they've uh, implemented once again their uh, surge uh, planning as as uh, they are expanding um, beds and other activities. Um, you know, Queens uh, Hospital, for example, did um, re-erect the the, um, the tent outside of the emergency room, and we are seeing all across the state um, the hospitals are preparing. Uh, we are working uh, with FEMA to get additional staffing for our healthcare system. And we did uh, the same thing during the last Delta surge. Uh, we do know that it's an area of concern. Um, we are implementing the change in CDC policy regarding uh, isolation. Um, and um, as uh, has occurred all across the country, 
um, Omicron is uh, more easily spread and uh, it has had an impact on workforce for first responders, uh, teachers, as well as others. And so that definitely is a current concern here in the islands uh, as it has been all across the country. When we began to see the case numbers going down and the vaccination numbers going up, this is prior, of course, to Omicron, you had given the authority back into the counties, allowing the mayors to really have uh, control over what decisions they wanted to make if there were some sort of surges or to really decide if they wanted to put in further restrictions if needed. Since then, of course, we know where we're at with Omicron and with these case counts. Uh, do you feel comfortable still with allowing the mayors to make these decisions for their communities? Or, or do you see a time where you would eventually need to step back in like you did prior to, um, you know, with, with the first wave of COVID-19 and having the mayors come to you for approval of their uh, regulations moving forward. You know, Ryan, we continue to talk on a weekly basis, multiple times a week. And so, um, you know, we have been having discussions about uh, restrictions and actions that can be taken. Uh, you know, this is a very different surge once again. And uh, you know, there is no playbook. And so, um, you know, I do respect the mayor's uh, abilities uh, to make decisions. Um, you know, they continue to look at uh, the situation in, in each of their counties and are taking appropriate actions uh, that they feel is necessary. I want to ask you about testing. There's a lot of people who say that the testing is just not available. The state, of course, did distribute a lot of home tests a couple of months ago, uh, but people have burned through a lot of those. And when it comes to getting a PCR test, we see that those are not as readily available as folks would like. Is there any plan to expand access to testing? You know, Yanji, we have been working to expand um, access to testing. You know, part of the challenge, I think, is that um, the people who are doing vaccinations are the same uh, who are doing uh, the testing. And so uh, we are working with the providers, the pharmacies, uh, and uh, healthcare um, uh, people all across the state to try to uh, encourage them to have available both vaccinations as well as tests at every site. You know, if someone is trying to get tested, I certainly would go to the county website uh, you know, one of the challenges when we have, you know, several hundred um, testing and vaccination locations is really some of them may get full and run out of uh, tests and there still would be uh, tests available in other uh, areas. And so I certainly, if someone uh, is in need of getting tested, I certainly would encourage them to, uh, if their first choice site is not taking um, appointments to really look at um, neighboring um, pharmacies. Uh, because I, I do know that there is broadly uh, testing available. Uh, you know, we have been seeking the, the rapid antigen test and since, um, you know, early October, moving into November, we've been trying to get a commitment to purchase large quantities of these tests and we just have not been able to do it. We, we can't find a, a vendor who wants to sell it to us. You know, the federal government is buying uh, and we have been outbid in um, seeking tests by other states and other uh, entities. So uh, that is a challenge, but we do, um, we've, you know, we've significantly increased the volume of tests that we can do locally. Uh, and certainly if someone needs a test, I would just uh, encourage them if their first choice location is not taking an appointment, I would look at uh, other surrounding pharmacies as well.
on this topic of tests, we're seeing a lot of questions also about the Safe Travelers program. Uh, we had also heard talks that there was maybe a consideration of adding the testing requirement back into the Safe Travels program, which would uh, you know, go along with the vaccine verification uh, that is uh, currently required for those who want to bypass quarantine. Has there been any discussions to change Safe Travels program to include this testing option or any other changes that might be coming for those residents and visitors entering the state? Yeah, Ryan, we uh, definitely are looking at the change in CDC guidance uh, and um, uh, looking at what is required to implement it. Uh, as you know, the CDC uh, did change uh, the requirement instead of a 10-day quarantine, uh, they did change it to a five-day quarantine uh, with five days of wearing masks. Uh, so we are looking at um, that and making those changes. We also are looking uh, at um, the boosters and, and what um, CDC is now saying is about uh, up-to-date vaccinations that, um, that we want to see uh, a booster shot for those who are fully vaccinated uh, within a five or six months of completing their vaccination regimen. And uh, we are looking to see what actions are necessary to implement that in safe travels. How soon could we see a change like that, the booster requirement? You know, something like that, Yanji, we know that um, the community needs time to react to that. So we would have to provide at least two weeks for those who um, may not be up to date uh, to have the opportunity to go and get uh, vaccinated if they need to. So uh, any kind of change would provide um, at least two weeks of notice to the to community in general. Something else that happened over the weekend is we saw the return of a cruise ship uh, here to the islands. And uh, there were a lot of questions and comments about the cruise ship coming into dock here uh, in our comment section this morning. Uh, I think a lot of people out there are, you know, they, they recognize and they remember back when this all started. It all really started with those cruise ships getting infected with passengers uh, and being docked in Honolulu Harbor for some time. Uh, if you can talk to us about what that conversation is like with these cruise liners who are entering back in and how they are you know, essentially promising that they are taking every step possible to ensure the safety of the passengers, as well as when they come off to their exposure to those who are here on the island. Yeah, Ryan, thanks uh, for that question. You know, uh, it definitely is an entirely different situation um, that we're in. The CDC did issue very strict guidance to the cruise industry about what would be required uh, to keep uh, both the crew and customers uh, safe on cruise ships. Uh, so for example, um, the cruise lines uh, do have the option of looking uh, at requiring vaccinations and some of them are requiring 100% vaccinations, meaning uh, all crew and passengers are fully vaccinated. Uh, and others um, are looking at uh, lower requirements for vaccination. I think the real difference uh, is the cruises that are focused on children who don't have the ability or are not eligible for vaccinations and how uh, many of the cus customers would be children who would not be eligible for vaccination. Uh, both Carnival uh, and Norwegian cruise lines, uh, you know, Norwegian is focused at a virtually 100% vaccination rates for crew and passengers, and Carnival is above 95%. I think the Grand Princess is at 99%. So 
uh, the CDC is requiring reporting on that status for all the incoming. Uh, the cruise ships have to have the ability to uh, isolate and quarantine on board the vessels. Um, and so anyone who is COVID positive would have to uh, be able to be uh, isolated on the vessels themselves. Uh, and our agreement does require um, the cruise line to have an arrangement. If someone is COVID positive and needs to uh, disembark from the, the cruise liner, um, the, cruise, um, the cruise company is required uh, to be able to provide transport um, for those COVID um, positive patients. They need to have arrangements with a healthcare provider so that um, they can be transported safely uh, to a healthcare provider and, uh, and they need to take care of those who are COVID positive. Um, they also need to have the ability to test on the cruise ships themselves. And so should someone become um, symptomatic then they have to get tested uh, and certainly no one who is uh, COVID positive are allowed to disembark without approval. I want to ask you about masks. You've been a big proponent of masks from the beginning. You know, the only state to continue with an indoor mask mandate throughout the pandemic. There's a question here from Kara that I've been hearing a lot, which is, uh, why are we not providing students, school staff, and community with high-quality masks, or is there a plan to do so? Uh, some municipalities on the mainland have given students and teachers KN95 masks. I know me personally, when I went online to try to get some of these for my family, they are quite expensive. And if you can even authenticate whether or not they're the real deal, there's um, reporting that a lot of them, that if you try to buy them online, might be fakes. So is there any plan to try to distribute high-quality masks to the community? on a large scale? Um, Yanji, as you may recall, we did uh, during the early stages of the pandemic um, uh, distribute, purchase and distribute um, high quality masks uh, to, to um, preschool providers, uh, to businesses who have been unable to get masks. You know, we uh, are having that conversation, especially with the Department of Education to make sure that they uh, have access uh, to the masks that they need. Um, you know, we did have a warehouse full of um, personal protective equipment and uh, we definitely are working with the Department of Education to make sure that uh, they have the equipment that they need to keep their employees safe and the students safe. Um, so uh, we have not purchased um, child-sized masks um, uh, previously, and certainly that's something that we could um, consider doing uh, as we look forward to what's the best way to keep our kids in in-person learning. You know, when we look at some of the cluster reports that are coming out and where a lot of these community spreads or super spreaders are happening, they're happening from these events, uh, events that do uh, require vaccination verification under programs like the Safe uh, Access Oahu program that has been established. But given what we know about Omicron and its ability to spread even to those who are vaccinated, there are some who are questioning if this vaccine verification type of program is effective enough with Omicron being that uh, you know, it is still spreading between those who are even vaccinated, some even boosted are still becoming infected uh, and saying that it, because of the spread, verifying if someone is vaccinated, some may not be enough. There may need to be also testing available for these types of events. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on that, of course, because we know the, the language and, and the narrative now is getting vaccinated will, and if you get COVID, uh, you know, can 
can really help to reduce your symptoms and, and really keep you out of the hospital. But in terms of spread overall, do you believe that these vaccine verification programs are, are, are something that is still helping during a time when Omicron is spreading regardless of vaccination status? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. I mean, we, we definitely believe that um, the program uh, is helpful, but we know that um, being just fully vaccinated and not boosted uh, is not as much protection as, um, as um, the vaccinations did provide uh, during the Delta surge or uh, previous COVID um, viruses. So uh, we continue to encourage everyone who is fully vaccinated to get boosted. Uh, we are having discussions with the mayor about um, about uh, changing the, the Safe Oahu Access uh, program on Oahu as well as across uh, the state to um, require up-to-date vaccinations. And, you know, the CDC uh, has been uh, talking more about that, about it's um, making sure that you're within six months of being fully vaccinated and um, getting another shot um, for those who are outside of that window. Um, you know, again, Ryan, I, it's about personal responsibility. Certainly, I would encourage people to make choices about going to events that have large gatherings um, and begin to ask whether they know whether people are infected or not. I, I certainly would uh, recommend that people avoid large gatherings, even uh, those um, where um, everyone is supposed to be vaccinated. I certainly would encourage everybody to wear a mask and even double masks. Um, you know, just talking with Dr. Char, she's uh, expressed to me and, and taught me about what's required to uh, wear two masks, uh, having one be uh, a medical uh, mask, not necessarily an N95, uh, but then uh, at least a surgical mask, which provides uh, improved protection, and then a cloth mask over that. We're getting still a lot of questions about sort of what can the hospitals take? This one from David kind of sums it up. What is the max number of COVID hospitalizations before the system cannot handle anymore? We know that during the Delta surge, we got over 400 and that, you know, there was really talk of, of a breaking point of the whole system collapsing. We're not there yet, but when you look at, you know, this is also going back to Ryan's question, this idea of taking back some of the uh, controls, if you will. We've heard a lot about personal responsibility, but at some point there is a feeling that perhaps government needs to set more guardrails. What's your threshold for this? You know, if it's not case counts and it is hospitalizations, at what point and, and what would you look at actually implementing to try to make sure that our hospitals uh, can handle the surge? Yeah, uh, thanks, Yanji. You know, um, as we've had uh, discussions before, and I know you've asked, what is the threshold? You know, unfortunately, there is no simple threshold. Uh, would I be willing to step in uh, and issue a statewide order? I absolutely would be. Um, um, if that, if I do believe that that's the best way to uh, continue to keep our community uh, healthy and safe. I think the challenge with uh, hospitalizations and monitoring hospitalizations is the fact that it's a lagging indicator. Uh, you know, the case counts that we see today, the 3,000 plus uh, cases that uh, were part of the count today, uh, really will have an impact on hospitalizations five to 10 days from now. So um, we are looking at a couple other things. We are looking at the number of COVID patients in the ICUs 
because it, that really is an indication of a severe illness. Uh, and with Omicron, we're seeing uh, less um, COVID patients in our ICU units, uh, even though that is increasing very, very slowly. You know, we also are monitoring um, oxygen utilization. As you may recall, we did have a period of time where uh, during the Delta surge, um, our hospitals were challenged with availability of oxygen. Um, and those are, and in, that's an indication of the severity of the illness and those that are really on ventilators and need help breathing. Uh, at this point, uh, during this uh, latest surge, we have not seen a real significant increase in oxygen consumption. So, you know, uh, the, the indications are that uh, Omicron is not um, as severe an illness, and we don't have as many um, patients going to the hospital, ending up in the ICUs or uh, on a ventilator. You know, we could spend uh, this whole half hour or even more talking about COVID-19, but there are uh, so many other issues that we also want to address. And before we uh, let you go, we want to bring up a few of them. One of them being Red Hill. If you can provide us an update on what's happening there, we know uh, your stance on this. You have come out, uh, you know, forcefully and asked uh, for the protection of these aquifers and for the military to uh, stop, of course, the fuel tanks and to withdraw from that. Can you tell us uh, where things are at in those conversations uh, with the Navy and any other updates you can provide us on what's happening with Red Hill? Yeah, certainly the Navy uh, has been working toward complying with the state's order. Uh, I know that they're in the process of hiring an independent consultant and they have asked us, um, you know, they've uh, in an RFP process, they've gotten uh, several uh, companies or consultants who have responded to help uh, assess the Red Hill tanks. And so uh, we continue to make progress in that area. Uh, as you know, uh, the Navy has been uh, flushing the distribution uh, system um, uh, in their military housing to try to uh, restore the water quality. Uh, and we continue to work with uh, the Navy in doing that. Um, they've um, committed to um, paying for uh, water testing equipment uh, at the university. Uh, and so we want to be able to test the water locally so that we can uh, reduce the time in getting uh, lab results back. Um, and so we are making uh, progress, Ryan. Uh, certainly, we continue to look at uh, the fuel uh, in the Red Hill um, pumping station itself. Uh, and the Navy has been working to skim the fuel out of the Red Hill shaft. Um, and we continue to work with them to try to identify the source of contamination uh, and what's required really to ensure that fuel does not get into our aquifer and into our water system. Yeah, and on that point, Ernie Lau on this program has said that the three wells that are shut down right now preventatively uh, to make sure that that doesn't contaminate our system could be shut down indefinitely. What are your concerns long-term for our water resource uh, given given that those wells are not operable at this moment? Yanji, I think the real concern at this point is really uh, trying to understand the source of the contamination uh, and um, really remediate it. If if um, we identify that a fuel head spill 
and uh, we get a better understanding of how it's getting into that Red Hill well, that will at least let us um, develop plans to remediate. That might require removing soil from uh, uh, areas of contamination or uh, shutting down that well and really looking to um, establish other wells in different parts of the aquifer. Um, you know, we continue to work with the Navy to be able to identify the source of contamination. And I think most importantly, how do we uh, correct that and um, take the actions necessary to assure that it doesn't happen again? We know that you're preparing for your final state of the state address that you'll be giving to the legislature uh, in, in just a little bit, but wanted to get uh, your thoughts heading into this legislative session with the budget that you uh, proposed to the legislature. There have been some new projections on the tax um, income that will be coming in for the state, as as well as uh, your decision to put aside close to a billion dollars for the rainy day fund. We spoke to both the speaker and Senate president who say they would probably like to spend that money instead rather than put it away in a rainy day fund. Your thoughts about the budget and overall um, going into your final state of the state. Yeah, just a couple of things, Ryan. You know, I really want to make sure that we can, uh, you know, we worked really hard. My administration has really worked hard to put the state on sound financial footing. Uh, COVID uh, upset that plan. Uh, and for the first time in the state's history, we had to borrow money to make payroll. You know, I, our commitment to $1 billion contribution to the rainy day fund is really to ensure that we don't have to do that again. You know, we understand better about how and what level of disruption to our economy would be impactful. Uh, and I, I think that uh, restoring the rainy day fund to a sufficient reserve would really be an investment in our, our community uh, going forward. We do know that after all the federal support that has been provided over the last two years, the federal government will not be in a position to step in again uh, should there be another emergency. Uh, and if we don't restore our uh, rainy day fund, uh, then again, we will really have a difficult time, have to look at furloughs and layoffs again, which we know uh, is really hard because uh, during these emergencies, the public needs more support. You know, they need healthcare, they need food stamps, they need unemployment um, uh, benefits uh, in order to survive. And we want to make sure that the state is in position to be able to provide that. I just want to give you an opportunity to give us a final thought this morning. I think there's a lot of uncertainty in the community when it comes to COVID. Parents sending their kids back. I know a lot of them have gotten notifications of possible exposures. We see, uh, you know, labor shortages throughout because people are calling out sick or perhaps, or you know, because of exposures. And there is this real feeling of, you know, when is this going to end? Obviously, I know you don't necessarily know that, but. What is your message to people who are feeling so much anxiety right now re regarding COVID and sort of the state of where things are at, especially if, you know, they might be having a hard time getting a test and, and they might not be able to get the mass that they need? What, what is your message to the community this morning? Yeah, certainly. Thanks, Yanji. Uh, you know, I do know that, um, that this is a challenging time for all of us. You know, I've had to deal with uh, being exposed to the virus and and trying to um, find uh, lungs to, to purchase masks um, for myself and my family. Uh, I've uh, had to go and look at where, where 
um, we can get a test uh, so that we can uh, just feel a little more comfortable about the fact that even though we've been exposed, we're not carrying the virus. So um, I, I do appreciate and understand what our community is, is going through. I just want to assure everybody that we are working, that we have a significantly increased capacity uh, to test, um, to find and identify those who are infected with the virus. So as I said, you know, if uh, where you usually go to um, doesn't have an appointment, I certainly uh, would look at um, nearby um, pharmacies and other health um, locations who should be able to um, to test you if you need to get tested. Uh, I encourage everybody to get uh, boosted. You know, it's the best way to protect yourself and protect your loved ones uh, from getting infected with COVID and really uh, ensuring um, that you avoid serious illness uh, and death ultimately. Um, and so um, I do think that we're in a much better And I think we might have lost him there. Um, but to sum up what the governor was saying, um, he said that he understands that people are feeling a lot of anxiety right now, that they are expanding testing capacity. You know, I've heard anecdotally from friends that they've had a lot of hard time getting a test, especially those PCR tests. The governor says that they should be available if they are not available at your provider of choice to look on the county websites and make sure that you expand out your search, that there are other venues that have testing. Um, he did say that they are considering adding perhaps the booster requirement for something like safe travels, uh, but that that would take you know, if they make that decision, it would take at least another two weeks to implement because they need to give people adequate notice to get that booster. So changes like that could take some time. And Ryan, sounds like they've been having a hard time purchasing tests that they actually want to purchase. Yeah, talking about the challenges that that presents uh, with making bids and, and going up against, as he said, uh, the federal uh, government that is also trying to get more tests available, as well as other states and municipalities that are also really trying to use tests, of course, as a way to continue on with operations in, in, in a significant amount of areas. The governor also saying that he is ready to step back in if need be. You know, he will continue to watch these numbers, especially with hospitals, hospitalizations. He didn't necessarily give an exact number of when uh, that would be to a level where he would need to step in to issue some sort of statewide um, mandate once again, but knowing that he does, he recognizes that uh, that is something that is a concern of people. In the past, we've heard him say, when the hospitals have tents that have been set up outside, uh, that's when you know that things aren't uh, looking so good. And so when the tents come down, uh, he would say that the restrictions would come down. Well, the tents uh, at Queens Medical Center has gone up. And so we'll continue to pay attention to uh, what the governor is using as his metrics to decide whether or not he will step back in and take control over what was previously given to the county mayors to make decisions. Right. He did also offer some assurances saying that oxygen availability is widespread, that COVID patients, not necessarily hospitalized, but in ICU beds uh, are still relatively low. And so that was a comfort as well. But it does sound like there's a lot of decision making still at play that they haven't made. He hasn't made any definitive choices in terms of, you know, we've, we always ask him for a line in the sand. And this is obviously a very tricky situation with a lot of different metrics that he's looking at. A lot of conversations happening. Also talking about 
uh, the rainy day fund and saying, you know, that the federal government, unlike in the last few years, is not going to come to the state's rescue, that that money is basically tapped out. And that's why he feel it's appropriate to put almost a billion dollars in the rainy day fund. We do expect uh, a pretty robust fight at the at this coming legislative session. Yeah, arguing that uh, really that reserve needs to be filled back up and that, uh, you know, there is a need for it moving forward. And it would really be an investment in the future uh, of what could happen should the state run into an emergency where they need that money. We'll see what happens. Things will unfold uh, as he delivers his state of the state address again for the final time as his term uh, will wrap up at the end of this year. Uh, the governor, of course, will have to work with the legislature to move some things through. We'll see uh, how things get. We, we know that there may be a bill that may limit any future governor's uh, orders uh, to issue emergency proclamations. So well, a lot to look forward to in terms of the legislative side and how the administration and the legislative body will work together moving forward into this next year. That's right. We appreciate all of you being here. We know that you had a lot of questions. We do our best to sum them up. Coming up on uh, Wednesday this week, we have a candidate for Lieutenant Governor, Jill Takuda. She'll be joining us, telling us about why she's seeking that office. And then Colin Moore, political analyst uh, and UH Manoa professor, will sum up that race and give us an outlook on how that race and other uh, political news is all shaping up. So we hope to join, hope you join us right back here on Wednesday at 1030. Aloha. We'll see you then. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs and Beachside Roofing.